Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the podcast that tinkers under the hood of a paranormal and attempts to find some sort of explanation to what's going on. Indeed. Now, I thought today we'd be good to look back at the year, basically, Ben. That was my thoughts. I think that's a good idea. I mean, it's been a tremendous year. Well, I was thinking, who would have thought at the start of this year <laughs> that we would find sanity in a paranormal podcast? Well, yeah, no, you're quite right. You're quite right. In, in January, none of <laughs> none of this seemed feasible. But we've, we've been going, like, what, nine months now? We launched our first episode in March. We probably spent a couple of months well we've had the idea for a while i remember sitting in your kitchen recording some stuff on a mobile phone to kind of go can we even speak yeah <laughs> and yeah. and will we just sit there and go i don't know you say something no you say something <laughs> yeah 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 uh, and then we we prepared a couple of episodes i remember and tried them out um and then, yeah, and then we started recording. And Nikki's story was the first one we released. I don't think it was the first one we recorded from my memory, but um, that went out in March. And wow. I re- I remember sitting there going, <laughs> texting you every five minutes, going, uh, well, not every five minutes, every couple of days, going, we've had four people listen. Four people are listening. Yeah. And uh, last week, we hit our... 10,000 download mark which is fantastic yeah that's pretty amazing yeah uh, who would have thought that at the start well at start of March which is is great we've done over 40 main episodes and some other stuff and I must say it's been loved it yeah it's been really fun it's been really fun it really has really been a pleasure so what we're going to do today is uh normally when people look back at the year they just play you a load of clips so we are going to play you a load of clips, but we're going to have a little chat about uh, some of the great episodes that we've done. Uh, we'll keep it short and sweet, but there are some really funny bits and some amazing stories in here. The first one we released was Nikki's story, which uh, we later called The Ilma Haunting, but we're going to uh, talk about that later on in the episode. I'm going to start with uh, which has an episode that's been probably one of our most popular in terms of downloads and feedback Uh, and that was one called Vardiga and the Banshees which uh, I remember Ben you told the stories of a Vardiga what was a one line on what a Vardiga was again how would you describe it Uh, it is uh, uh, the, the belief that you are hearing uh, a family member coming back to your house, but they aren't there. And, That's at, right. A, and then um, you go downstairs, you see they're not there, and then 10 minutes later they are there. That's that's right. We also covered banshees who kind of scream before, uh, before uh, either you or a relative is about to die that give you a premonition of that. We also told some great stories, uh, well, you did, Ben, and I told a couple of my own about... Jots, just one of those things. So strange coincidences. Oh, yeah. Uh, And that's the clip I'm going to play now because we had a very funny, well, a really spooky story, but it turned quite funny when we started uh, 
thinking about uh, virtual realities and are we living in a computer simulation? So the, the first one I'm going to play, Ben, are you, I'm sure you remember this, is the woman with the pearl travel clock. Oh, yeah. There's a businesswoman and part of her travel kit is she goes everywhere with her favourite travel alarm clock. So it's a small, white, wind-up travel alarm clock, the sort that folds folds down. Yeah. And uh, she described it's got um, a mother-of-pearl effect finish on the outside. So she's abroad, goes to pack up her bag, searches everywhere, but can't find this particular alarm clock. Obviously, she's upset because this is the thing that she takes with her everywhere. It's almost become a good luck charm. But she has to catch her plane, so she reluctantly packs up without it and goes home. Once on arrival, she unpacks her suitcase. She finds a different, broken and similar alarm clock in her bag. So this one is also white, but it doesn't have a mother-of-pearl finish. She describes it as being a lot cheaper looking than the last one, and it's broken. Puzzled, she puts the clock aside, goes downstairs from her kitchen, from her bedroom where she's unpacking. There in the middle of her hallway is her original clock. And it was set, as she describes it, was set on the floor perfectly intact. She retrieved the imposter clock and found that she now had two clocks, both similar, but only one was her original clock. Oh, weird. Of, from from these things which if we just assume for a moment that those people are neither mad nor lying and I think that's a reasonable assumption at least for the majority of them then we get to um, we get to spirits Mm. who are possibly playing with us we get to again the simulation Mm -hmm. theory so code going wrong in the in the the simulation yeah yeah there is just no other way of explaining it (laughs) i'm thinking about your in that context i'm thinking about the travel clock again i just had this vision of the (laughs) the person who's playing the game and oh we've lost the 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 pearl covered (laughs) travel clock i haven't got enough tokens left to buy another one (laughs) we're gonna have to get the one without the pearl that's a bit broken and hope they don't notice i'm not putting any more money in (laughs) but then then they see her unlocking it and they're like damn we've got two now what are we gonna do with that (laughs) i love that story ben I just, I just keep thinking about this woman sitting there with the two clocks. It's amazing. It's so weird, isn't it? Like, I, I can't really get my head around it. Like, if it's a, if we're living in a computer simulation, like, I suppose it kind of makes sense. But it's such a weird, tiny little uh, detail to bother with. I, I find it weird, but. I really, I do really love that story. Yeah, yeah. I think about that one quite a lot. And uh, again, I think, it, like I said, it's one of our most listened to episodes. So if you get a chance, go back and have a listen to that one. It's all about premonition. It's called Vardiga and the Banshees. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the early ones we did and we worked on quite early was uh, Werewolves. The Canuck Chase. Oh, one of where, my favourites. So uh, if you've not heard it, it's a really good episode. There's lots of uh, stories of werewolves, obviously, 
we speak to a great guy called Johnny Greatrex, who's a professor of journalism now, but was a journalist in the area called Canic Chase, which is a very spooky area, right? It is. And I've since learnt that I didn't know at the time, but it's a mass graveyard. It was um, agreed between the Allied forces, I guess, and uh, Germany, I believe in 1964, that... um, we would bury all of the dead German soldiers that were killed in the Second World War by the British and the Allies in the graveyards in Cannock Chase. And then the Germans would do similar in their graveyards, um, oh, wow. which was like a... Um, you wouldn't want, after the war, for relatives to be wondering where they're dead were buried right yeah yeah and um so yeah that's that is what canic chase is it has a lot of dead from the second world war well which probably helps uh if not the paranormal certainly the mythology yeah exactly well I, I, the clip i'm gonna play from that is uh because it still fascinates me is really Ben explaining how you'd done a freedom of information uh, request to the police, asking them what kind of zombie and other paranormal sightings they've had. So uh, have a little listen to that. So we've got this one constabulary. Okay, so these these are adjoining, these are police, adjoining... forces that cover the area. Basically. Right, exactly, right, okay. yeah. exactly. And what did they come back? What, what, did, what did you find out from the other one? Was that any better or was that nothing? Okay. So... Over the course of a five-year period, so this is reporting 06 to 10, 2006 to uh, 2010, uh, nearly 730 (laughs) reports in total of all of those different things, by far and away. 730? Yeah. Okay, that sounds quite big. It does sound quite big. Um, the, The lion's share is certainly demons. I don't know who's classifying these. Okay, and so I, but that the things you're describing, somebody could describe it as a demon, I guess. Yes, I love the fact they've got these various categories into that much detail. Absolutely. Now, when you say demon, do you mean a werewolf demon, or do you mean wow? Okay. Yeah, or or is it just a common run of the real demon? I don't know. So the other police force had zero. This one had over seven hundred. Well, the, the thing is, I'm not sure that they had zero. I think um, it might well be the way that I'd either requested it or the way that they categorize it. It's not some big cover-up between one other, one police force and another. That makes sense, doesn't it? That you just somebody will put them down. I don't know, miscellaneous or something that didn't kind of fall under your request. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Uh, and I I can understand how you might have uh, a category for UFO because I think that's fairly self-explanatory. There's something um, strange in the sky. Yeah. Um, What is kind of interesting about this is um, how you uh, how. Uh, when it's reported to them, the, the the person on the other end of the phone makes a distinction between, say, a zombie and a demon. I don't know how that quite comes up. Yeah, yeah. I am kind of interested in the fact that uh, in 2010 there were two zombies reported. I really, I'd really like to look into that. <laughs> I, I'm still, point. I'm still kind of intrigued about what the definition of a wizard is. Does it? Does right. it, does it, is it round glasses and a lightning scar on your forehead, and then that's then a big long cloak? Or well, exactly, exactly. But but also, when you see a wizard, 
or, or indeed a ghost, why are you compelled to report that to the police? <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. really understand. Yeah. Like, darling, I think I've just seen a wizard walk past. Phone the police. And, like, surely, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, well, I think the, the thing that I think is really interesting is that you've got s- over 700 in, in what, what, was it a five-year five, five five year year period? period. That, yeah. I mean, that's... If you just said to me, you know, one I got back said zero, and the other one I checked out said ten, that's kind of what I would expect it. But seven hundred's quite that's quite that's quite a meaty number, you know. I'm sure a lot of those are, are, are kind of miss people seeing kind of stuff that's, you know, that they've mistaken for something else or somebody who's kind of delusional or whatever. But it's that's that's a lot. It's more than I was expecting. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. I'm completely still amazed <laughs> that, that somebody there <laughs> is sat at a computer going, so you would uh, you would describe this thing as hairy, madam. Uh, it was wearing ripped shorts, large fangs, and walking on two legs. Uh, let me look at my computer. Yeah, I think that will go down as a werewolf rather than a cryptid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of those things that will kind of... Never get to the bottom of, but yeah, I really, really enjoy the the CRM systems of the police force that uh, put <laughs> werewolves into their own category. The the other thing I like about that episode is Ben kind of set me the challenge of going to Canuck Chase with him and wandering around the graveyard looking for um, werewolf poo, which I wasn't particularly keen to do, especially when... Uh, Johnny, who had been a journalist down there, described it as uh, quite a, a hot spot for dogging, not not the kind of cryptoid kind. And uh, so, luckily, that was that was another benefit of going into lockdown. I didn't have to sit in a freezing cold car with Ben collecting uh, various uh, poo to see whether it's werewolf or not. But that that may come next year. We will definitely do it next year. We have to go werewolf hunting in Canuck Chase. We have to. Let's move on to zombies and preppers. Oh. So Ben put together a great episode uh, on zombies. There was a mixture of uh, stories uh, about people who'd seen zombies, police reports, various bits and pieces. Uh, There was... Uh, I'd managed to find a thing from the CDC, the Centre for Disease Control in the States, which was a pamphlet on how to survive a zombie apocalypse, which sparked the idea of us trying to find somebody who was a prepper, who was prepping for a zombie apocalypse. Uh, And we found one. It was a lovely lady uh, called Julie who lives in London, though she's originally from America. Uh, and uh, her and her friends have put together a little prepper's survival group. And in this clip, she explains what we should all be doing to uh, be ready if the uh, apocalypse does come. If you were going to advise a newbie prepper, what would you say the first three things they should do? The first three things do? that you do. But if you're talking real apocalypse like what I've been sort of thinking about, what we imagine when I get together with my mates and start working through what we're going to do about it. Yeah. The first thing you do is fill up your bathtub. Okay. There you go. Top tip. So filling, filling the bath. I'm assuming you don't have your bath filled all the time no. <laughs> <laughs> with water, but 
where what where is the tipping point? Yeah, so so there's this the, the thinking that we've done is how long do you wait before you think that something's going to be a, a real problem? And and what in all of the thinking that I've done and all the prepping with my friends, I think it's when it's at the point where looting starts. So when when law and order starts to break out, that's that's when you start to really worry. And so the first seventy two, all the research we've done is the first seventy two hours of when there's an incident that could trigger something. It, if, if there's going to be mass looting, it will be within the first 72 hours. So we have a plan for the first 72 hours, and then after that is the second part of the planning. It would be great if you could run us through the plan for the yeah. first yeah, 72 yeah, yeah. hours because yeah, we're yeah. almost becoming a okay. public yeah, service yeah. broadcaster here. So, so, so I keep this on my phone, and, and, and with my WhatsApp group, we all have this plan. And when we meet, we make adjustments to it, update it, resend it out. So everybody's got this. It's just in my notes. So I do have an advanced shopping list, which I can go through a, a, a few of the things on that at some point. Uh, it, it includes weapons, <laughs> which is also a key one. And yeah. one of the discussions, but in the first 72 hours, first thing on my list is fill your bath with water. Second is dash to the shops. And then I have a little referral to what my shopping list is. Yeah, go on, let's have a little <laughs> So I have a shopping list for the first 72 hours. Get petrol, fill up your jerry cans, stay put and prepare for mass looting. But try to avoid contributing to the looting. <laughs> okay. Is, is, is that just to be a good citizen or is yeah. there any reason behind it? No, just be just a good be, citizen. Yeah, yeah, no, try, you, know, don't, you don't have to do the looting. The main objective for the first 72 hours is to prepare for the next fortnight. Right. Then you go in stages, prepare for the, for the next fort. Prepare to leave London because probably you will be leaving London. So right. we have an escape route. We've got a plan of where we're going. Right. And we've so, agreed so that as well. So better to be in the countryside than in a city. In the country. Yeah, right. absolutely. Get out of the city. Every, all, the, all the research tells us. I think the thing about uh, listening back to that, Ben, is she wasn't what I was expecting a prepper to be like. No, I think you're right. Like, I think we said at the time she's she's not crazy, and yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know that's that's a key point of what you imagine uh, preppers to be. But I think, and I I know I said it at the time, but more and more I think that maybe like you can prep for all kinds of things, but I think it's really difficult to prep for every scenario that there is every outcome yeah and um that you know she describes going into the countryside in a car and the the overriding issue is a um an an electronic pulse weapon could could disable pretty much every car and and I think that sort of describes like you know general humanity at the moment is that it's very very difficult to prepare for any eventuality. It's not just like Brexit or COVID or anything like that. You can't really prep for something that a rogue nation might do. Like we know, you know, our our enemies. They're not going to invade us with nuclear weapons and fighter planes and stuff. It's going to be a genetic disease or it's going to be uh, an electronic pulse weapon or something like that. And I I do think that that is more difficult 
to get away from. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, the thing I took away from that interview was something that Julie said really stuck with me. She said it's more an exercise in self-soothing, I think was her exact right. words. It was almost for her and her friends to just feel like they were prepared and doing something. Yeah. You know, so I, you know... I think you're right, but but maybe the objective of it is not necessarily to prepare for the apocalypse, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. It's it's almost an exercise in um, personal welfare, personal mental welfare, and yeah, and yeah. and that's totally understandable. Like, and, and I guess feeling in control in a bit of an out of control world. Yeah, yeah, we're totally. We're looking for a bit of that. I yeah. Guess. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And particularly for those of us who sort of um, got to adolescence in the early nineties, when we thought, I think, that we'd got past the worst of it, only to find ourselves a few years later in like as you say a completely unpredictable world yeah i you you have to find solace wherever you can get it and i think she's got it completely right i i've i can't fault her for what she's doing i think it's it's great well uh if you want to listen to that episode, go back. It's uh, Zombie 101, it's called. Uh, and uh, I think it's Preparing for the Apocalypse or something. But it's definitely the main title, Zombie 101. Um, so let's move on to one of the bigger stories of the year, the Tic Tac UFO incident. Videos had been circulating online purporting to show uh, military, navy, airmen, filming an unidentified flying object but the military had remained pretty quiet on the whole thing but in 2020 uh, the pentagon on behalf of the military released a statement saying yes these videos are genuine and yes they do show a genuine unidentified flying object so i'm going to play you a bit of audio from that and uh, and the press statement itself so have a listen to this I know we're not seeing the clips, but I just thought we could have a little listen to some of the audio because it is it's quite astounding. It is astounding. And it's the sort of thing that you would expect to hear, I think, from an actor in a Hollywood movie if it was a sci-fi movie. Yeah. And we have to sort of remember that what we're listening to is a military pilot talking to other military pilots he is not expecting this to be released you know this is this is a moment that he is just talking to a colleague and the emotion in his voice i i think that says a lot you, you you'd have to be a good actor to put that on yeah and i what i've done is i've kind of i've kind of edited the two bits of audio together and i've cut out some of the what would be for us on a podcast dead air but um just you know, if you've if you've seen it or heard it, this will it'll give you a kind of recollection of what it's about. If you've not heard it, it might spark you to go and have a look at the videos themselves. But let's just play a little bit of that audio. Dude, there's, a on, bro. there's a whole fleet of them. Look on the SA. My gosh! Oh 
all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, I think, dude. That's not our LNS, though, is it? It's not. It is the LNS, dude. Well, if there's like another thing, it's rotating. in their voices this is not something that's normal or that they come across or that they see every day I mean these guys are kind of they're ecstatic and amazed by what they're witnessing right they are they are and it's also worth pointing out that this system they're using is called FLIR forward-looking infrared and it's the computer and the system that's also locked onto these things. So it's you it's you, you could first of all dismiss that people are seeing things or mistaking something. This is an object being tracked by a piece of military hardware which is designed to do uh targeting on obviously you know uh the foe the the enemy planes of your foe and their missiles and whatever. Yeah. It's found this object and is tracking it. It's not an illusion. Well, let's. I think what we should do is I uh, I went to rather than taking it from the various news articles that have been written in the last week or so. I thought I'd go to the source, so I did go to the uh, U.S. Department of Defense uh, press area, which they do have. So I'd like to read from read the official statement because it's it's quite short, but I think we can probably talk a lot around it. It's probably what it doesn't say is as important as what it does say. So, so as Ben said, these videos did leak online um, a few years ago, and it's for some reason April twenty seventh, twenty twenty, the Department of Defense decided to officially released them and put out this short statement. The Department of Defense has authorized the release of three unclassified Navy videos, one taken in November 2004 and the other two in January 2015, which had been circulating in the public domain after unauthorized release in 2007 and 2017. The US Navy previously acknowledged that these videos circulating in the public domain were indeed Navy videos. After a thorough review, the department has determined that the authorised release of these unclassified videos does not reveal any sensitive capabilities or systems and does not impinge on any subsequent investigation of military airspace incursions by unidentified aerial phenomena. DOD is releasing the videos in order to clear up any misconceptions by the public on whether or not the footage that has been circulating was real, or whether or not there is more to the videos. The aerial phenomena observed in the videos remain characterised as unidentified. And, I mean... Wow. It's incredible when you read that statement back. It is just incredible. 
so uh, we haven't done a ton of UFOs, Ben, on the podcast. I think mainly because we've talked about it before. It's like there's so much, uh, to use a remote viewing phrase, there's so much noise out there about the UFO phenomenon. It's really hard to kind of cut through it and work out what's real and what's just noise. Yeah, that's right. And there's also a lot of other people who are making content about it. I think it's difficult to find a new angle on it. But if you, you know, you report what we've just played, then it's it's pretty interesting. But also when you bring it up to date, like in the last week, there has been reports uh, from the Israeli military of cuboid craft being chased down. And this is not something that is in the, uh, you know, the, no, this is this is mainstream stuff. This was in the New York Times. This was in the Guardian. This was in the Times, and it feels like as the years progress, as time goes on, we're getting closer to disclosure. Really, yeah, I agree. I think we said on the on the podcast about the the Tic Tac that we felt or I felt at least, I'm not going to speak for you, but I felt that there was, that the the Pentagon releasing these statements, was this them kind of warming us up for more announcements? And it's, I guess that's not really materialised, but um, there certainly is more that seems to be coming out, just leaking out, even if it's not coming out through official sources, I think. Yeah, I think... More credible, more credible stuff, I should, yeah, I should yeah, say. Yeah, exactly, more credible stuff. And uh, that, so with that credibility, like, I know it's implicit in the term, but it's, uh, it's things that are more difficult to deny. Like, if you have the Israeli military publishing images of a... a particularly peculiar flying craft you have to wonder where this is going you really do after the tic tac and everything that's happened over the last sort of two years it it does feel like we're going to get to the point where somebody cracks and says yeah these are it's out there yeah exactly the these the truth is out there these are not uh these are not craft from terrestrial sources yeah yeah, yeah, I think so. Do you remember, Ben, when we looked at evil objects or objects of evil? Oh, God, I do, yeah. So in that episode, we looked at some of the kind of big cases of haunted objects like Annabelle the doll and stuff like that. So there's some big stories in there that are reasonably well-known, but if you want to hear our take on it, go back and check that out. Uh, the clip I've chosen from that is something that it was just bizarre researching and looking into was the market on eBay for supposedly haunted objects. Have a, have a listen to this. So I, I found an article that was uh, in the New York Times towards the end of last year, uh, which talks about how a lucrative trade in haunted, haunted items has developed on eBay. Uh, and I did a little search, actually, before we 
started recording this. And there are multiple items for sale on eBay that claim to be haunted. And these range from £20 to kind of £3,000 plus if they've been in a kind of haunted museum or whatever. Um, There's a recent example that was featured in the New York Times article, uh, which was a haunted teddy bear. Uh, Now, interestingly, because eBay have strict rules about what you can claim on an item that many people have had to write disclaimers to say, you know, if this thing is not haunted or whatever, you know, you you can't come after me. But some of the sellers have got quite clever in the way that they word it. So the seller of this teddy bear wrote, I do not take any responsibility for if anything at all happens, such as blown fuses, divorce, etc. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was quite interesting. Blown Uh, fuses, divorce. (laughs) You've got to get your priorities right. But yeah. this te- this teddy bear ended up selling for four hundred and seventy pounds on eBay. I see. I really want one, but well, let, at let the me just, same time. The other thing I found that was very funny in uh, these are some of the interactions between the buyer and the seller. So there's a bit of me that goes, "Why would you want to buy one of these things in the first place?" But there was. I don't, I'm not quite sure what the item is, but. Uh, here are a couple of exchanges. Buyer, I'm disappointed. I got this item and nothing has happened. Seller, you have had the item for less than 24 hours. These things take time. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ben, I, I remember at the end of that episode that you and I talked about whether we'd have one of these haunted objects in our life, mm-hmm. in our house, mm-hmm. even though we probably know it's 99.99% a scam. Uh, I, I think we both agreed that we wouldn't. I, I, I'm assuming we're sticking with that, right? Oh, yes, I'm <laughs> completely sticking with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say it was funny. We just kind of, the, the other day we were putting up the Christmas decorations and we got a kind of a nutcracker decoration that was just sat on the side and there was something quite spooky about that so every time I see that it freaks me out let alone one that's come haunted off eBay yeah no no I I think there's no good to be gained from any of those things and there's a whole load of uh, videos on YouTube of haunted dolls and such yeah it's it's not worth it We, we have no dolls in our house aside from a few dog toys and if any of them start moving i'm i'm just gonna burn them <laughs> fair enough fair enough um crop circles oh yeah sorting the wheat from the chaff now i know this is a this is a subject that you're keen on let's just have a listen to you giving us a background on the hoaxes and maybe I guess you'd describe it as a conspiracy around the hoax. It seems like a strange thing that we've got all these reports of called circles and concentric shapes, and then we've got those in the countryside. But let's just talk about what you said about you thinking that these are down to people hoaxing, because it is still feasible, potentially, that these things 
have been hoaxed for whatever reason because people do strange things. So right at the peak of the media interest in crop circles in the UK, we had, there was a revelation, supposedly. So the Today newspaper on the 10th of September 1991 released a story claiming that two people, Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley, had been hoaxing these circles for 19 years, and they claimed responsibility for the entire phenomena. So all of them? For all of them. Right. And what was so remarkable about that date and what makes it... I don't know if the word suspicious is right, but it attracts attention... Because the week of the 10th of September, uh, the UK broadcaster Channel 4, they have a long-running science strand called Equinox. And they had made a very serious documentary talking to, uh, well, they're called seriologists, people who were researching those corn circles. And these people are not quacks and weirdos these people are professors at various universities and they were proposing all kinds of theories and they made very serious contributions to this show on equinox uh this show called equinox but by the time that show aired the newspaper and media attention was entirely focused on doug and dave and in the minds of most people Even nearly 30 years later, if you mention this, people will remember, if not their names, they'll remember the news story. I've got a visual picture of them with the board and stuff. Right. I've got a mental image of that. I don't know if it's true, but I seem to remember something about this. Right. And the connection back to those Tully saucer nests is that Doug Bauer used to live in Tully Ah, in in Queensland in the 60s. And he claims that he saw those. And then back in the UK, when he made uh, friends with Dave Chorley, they both shared a hobby of watercolour painting and became friends. (laughs) And they used to drink in the same pub, the Percy Hobbs pub in Winchester. And in 1976, after a big drinking session... Uh, they decided that they would try and recreate those Tully saucer nests. The, right. the so they did, they didn't he didn't create it in Australia. He just came across it. Right, it. right. So he he describes that their their first circle is done in pristine wheat in 1976, and his only motivation is, and I quote, he so Bauer says to Chorley how would you like a bit of a laugh? And I cannot believe that those two people did all of those formations with absolutely no notice from the press for, well, if they started in 76, 
the UK press really didn't get on this until at least 11 years later. So they kept going with no they kept, no pranky they kept feedback. Going. Yeah, absolutely. And not only did and, they Sorry, how, how many did they do in that time? Do you know of Well, them? yeah, they they don't they say that they can't remember and they don't know. Cuz there's then, a lot of them, right? That's a lot to do even in that's a relatively I guess long period mm-hmm. of time, but that's that's most, you know, that's most of your weekends taken up, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And they they say that they did these things largely on a Friday night. Right. But so if you meet in the pub <laughs> Is there nothing to do in Wiltshire? <laughs> well, quite. So if you meet on a Friday night, go drinking and then decide to go uh crop, crop circling circle, in the dark. Crop circling in the dark. Dave Chorley's wife, she said that she became suspicious by the amount of miles on the car. <laughs> and he had to own up to her because she thought he was having an affair. <laughs> but that... I just love it. I don't know. No, no, I'm not having an affair. What I'm doing is with a board, I'm going out into fields and craping down. That's pretty. Right, right. So <laughs> Good excuse, though. <laughs> I do like the end of that, that they... <laughs> That their their line that the line to his wife was <laughs> when she thought he was having an affair was just now I'm going out and doing crop circles. <laughs> do you think this do you, do you think this whole hoax has been, has been about him covering up some kind of weird affair? Well, that was what we were considering at the time, and you know it's completely possible, but it seems really far fetched. When we were talking about it, we were looking at crop circles that occurred in the 1600s and the long history it goes very much beyond i think it's doug and dave who are the um the the people who claim to be the perpetrators of all crop circles and i i still maintain yeah they they really aren't the, it, there, there, there's something else going the, on. Oh, there is absolutely something else that's going on. And I think our guest at the time, he had some really interesting points to make about it. Yeah. Well, maybe next, next, you know, if vaccines get cracking and summer next year, fingers crossed, maybe we can go out there and uh, hang out with the, uh, whatever crop circle is called again? Uh, Seriologists, I think. With the with the, with the seriologists and uh, you know there was a lovely description about them all just sitting there in a field enjoying the sunshine and you know it's one of those I don't think I'd care if I came across any crop circle or paranormal phenomena I think just just the thought of sitting in a field with some people would be enough for me oh yeah absolutely yeah but I probably wouldn't want to sit in a field with the next lot of people. The black-eyed kids. <laughs> oh, I still want to see one. I keep saying you I still want to see, see one. You want to see one of those? You wouldn't have an evil object in your house, but you'd, you'd want to see a black-eyed well, kid. Well, but Ben, it's interesting you say that because the clip I'm going to play is actually could have be you meeting. Not a black-eyed kid, but I think we called him the black-eyed grandpa. Oh, yeah. And it's, a, it's an amazing story. So just have a quick listen to that i would say uh around about two years ago 
so I was driving down there and coming the other way because we were in the countryside as I said uh, there's a large farm vehicle some sort of uh, combine harvester or something and so I pull into a gateway uh, to allow this huge vehicle to come past me and as I pulled into this gateway and just before the combine harvester went past me uh, I heard a knock on the back window of the car on the passenger side and I turned round and there was a old man there and he was knocking on the window with a kind of a short walking stick and I thought oh goodness I hadn't noticed him there I'm guessing that he's cross because I had called into his cross him or something he had you know he was cross with me because I like hadn't spotted him I nearly run him over or something like that and I I really I I really hadn't done anything wrong as far as I could tell the combine harvester came past and then before I pulled away, I thought, well, I, I better just check that uh, everything's okay with uh, this old gentleman. And I looked across and he was uh, he was looking in the opposite direction to my car, and uh, which is just fields and a hedge. And uh, he had his stick... And he was sort of bashing it in the air. And I thought, oh, that's, that's very strange. But the other, the other strange thing about it was uh, the features on his face. So uh, his, a bit, you know, like these Black Eyed Kid stories, his eyes were not normal human eyes. They looked... Uh, they looked almost like bird eyes. They were completely black, and had. So when you uh, say completely black, no white, no white no, in his eyes at all. No white, no. Okay, so but that's it, weird. but it didn't, it, it didn't uh, worry me at the time. But what did worry me was after I saw him looking in the other direction and thinking, okay, that's fine. He's probably just confused i put the car into first gear pulled away and looked in the mirrors to check that you know i hadn't done anything uh to him hadn't run over his foot run over his foot yeah yeah and he he wasn't there he was gone he was completely gone yeah so ben do you still looking back on that again do you think that was a paranormal experience, or, or uh, did, yeah? I mean, you seem pretty convinced when we talked about the Black Eyed Kids that there was something going on there. It wasn't just an old guy that you nearly run over. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it was. I. It's one of those things. I can't find a good explanation for it. Like he was there one minute. And then gone the next, and 
it was yeah it was one of the most unusual things i've ever come across i'm not wow. saying that he was a <laughs> black-eyed grandpa but he definitely wasn't it wasn't right it wasn't right and it was wasn't a, wasn't of this world no it no it wasn't of this world because it in the middle of nowhere well it's not nowhere but in the middle of a field on the way to where you get your dog groomed and you're doing a turnaround people don't disappear like that they just don't and yeah it's still very very weird well um so maybe maybe your dream did come true that you did see uh, uh, one of the black-eyed community maybe not a kid but maybe you did see one a black-eyed um, father fuck up father or farmer um <laughs> Quick shout out to Anne Huff Bynaker as well, who's uh, been a real supporter of the podcast and is absolutely obsessed with Black Eyed Kids. So uh, thanks, Anne, for listening and supporting us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. And uh, I'm with you. I I really want to see one. <laughs> we did an episode uh, on time travel and there are a lot of great stories in there and I really struggled on which one to pick but to be honest there was only one that I could pick Ben given this year given 2020 oh god it had to be Donald it had to be <laughs> Donald Trump is a time traveler okay fair enough <laughs> um and uh if you've not heard this story it will slightly blow your mind if you have heard it it's definitely worth a revisit um but yeah, we couldn't we couldn't do a look back at 2020 and not mention the Donald, could we? I guess not, no. <laughs> but the weird coincidence, the weird bit about the coincidence of the Simpsons predicting Trump becoming president of the United States is uh, there is also a theory that Donald Trump is a time traveller. It kind of starts uh, with a writer called Ingersoll Lockwood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who was writing prolifically uh, in the 19th century and into the early 20th century. So he wrote uh, a book, a book called Baron, Baron Trump's Marvelous Underground Journey. So this book was written in 1893. So First thing that comes to your mind there is the main character in this book is called Baron Trump. Donald Trump has a son called Baron Trump. Uh, Yeah, so the main character, Baron Trump, travels to Russia and uh, makes alliances with the Russians and gets advice from someone called, can you remember, Ben? Big Don. Big Don. Don, who I believe is described in the book as the master of masters. Right? That, that's exactly it. Yeah, master of masters. Yeah. So, okay. So Baron Trump, Trump's got a son called Baron. Baron Trump, in this book written in 1893, travels to Russia to make allegiances, meets up with a guy called Don, the master of masters. And while he's there, he... Um, discovers uh, a time machine and starts travelling around in time. Okay, all right, I get that. That's kind of weird. The same author 
uh, a few years later, in 1900, wrote a book called The Last President. It, actually, it's not a book. I think it's a short story called The Last President. And the concept of that story is it's about a man who is elected to be the president of the United States against all the odds. He's not a typical politician. Uh, and his election causes division within the country and unrest within the country of America. In the story, the main character who becomes this uh, unlikely president lives in a hotel on Fifth Avenue in New York City. And not only is Fifth Avenue where Trump Towers is and where President Trump, when he was first elected, was living kind of full-time and commuting into the White House. But in the book, the actual location is exactly, exactly where Trump Towers is. Mm. Which is incredibly bizarre. This guy writes two books with all these connections with Donald Trump. It's, it's completely surreal to me. It's, it is very surreal. But also what I like in the um, in the Baron Trump books, uh, he's described as precocious, restless and prone to get in trouble and <laughs> often mentions his massive brain and has a personalised insult for almost everyone he meets. Well, he's, he certainly sounds like Trump. So, so I think... When people unearth these two books, which were written within a short space of time of each other by the same author, one in 1893, which was the Baron Trump's marvellous underground journey, and the short story of The Last President written in 1900, with all these associations with Trump, I think this story started to gain a bit of momentum. So then I guess people started looking at well, if he is a time traveller, has Trump made any predictions about the future that he's got right? And there are a few, and the, I, I guess the most weirdest one, I think me and you have talked about it before, Ben, and I think you have more knowledge on this, so I'll set it up, maybe you can explain to people, mm. that Donald Trump, in one of his books, uh, I think it's The America We Deserve. The America We Deserve, yeah. That's right. He... He kind of predicts 9-11, Twin Towers, Osama bin Laden. He's got some weird prediction about this, you know, at least a year before the event happened. Is that Am I, am I explaining that right? Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's more than a year. And uh, yes, you are exactly right. So, so um, the book is the second uh, book that Trump uh, wrote after uh, Trump, The Art of... Uh, comeback, the art of the comeback. Yeah, uh, is it the other? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and this one, the America we deserve, was published in January two thousand. And one of the things that he picks up on is um, a future uh, war on terror. Now he doesn't use the exact words "war on terror," but he does name Osama bin Laden and says that if we're not careful. Uh, basically, his point is, if we're not careful, we're going to end up uh, chasing uh, this person, Osama bin Laden, around the hills of Afghanistan with uh, huge army resources and all because he's committed a terrorist atrocity on American soil. Right. And, um, you know, before 2001, 
I mean, nobody had heard of Osama. Nobody in this country had heard of Osama bin Laden, yeah. and I'm sure most Americans hadn't. Exact sentence he says is, "I really am convinced we're in danger of the sort of terrorist attacks that will make the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center look like kids playing with firecrackers." But you sit there and go, well, if he's a time traveller, how did he get hold of a time travel machine, right? Yes, I think I know. I think I know as well. So, Nikola Tesla, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Apparently when Tesla died, which I think was in 1943, he was apparently working on theories around time travel and time and claimed that he was working on creating a time machine and he was getting very close to doing that. Certainly the American government took it quite seriously because as soon as he died, they raided his apartment in New York and seized all his papers on all his scientific work, including the work that he was uh, reported to be doing on time travel. And they decided to turn over the most important papers to an MIT professor to help try and develop the ideas further for the American government. Yeah, they gave them to John George Trump, John G. Trump. And he is uh, Donald Trump's uncle. And I believe that Donald J. Trump, he gets his name from his uncle. But suddenly you've got you've got this this narrative that as bonkers as the headline is Donald Trump is a time traveler when you actually pull the narrative together you've got a oh, Jesus you've got an interesting script for a movie although probably too unbelievable let alone the concept that Donald Trump is a time traveler and I guess it goes something like this John G Trump takes Tesla's work completes Tesla's work on a time travel machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, ropes in his nephew, the Donald, mm-hmm. uh, and says, hey, I've got this time travel machine. Do you want to have a, a play around on it? Donald kind of travels around all points in time. I know there's a theory that he went back in time. Let's go, Let's run with that theory. He goes back in time to the late 1800s, early 1900s. His ego goes crazy, writes these, this book, uh, the Baron Trump Underground Adventure book, and writes the Last President short story. You know, and you can see it. There's a character in it called Don, the master of masters. I mean, that's straight. You can, hear, you can always hear Donald talking about, you know, going, I know yeah. what I'm going to write. This guy, this all-powerful being called Don. Um, oh yeah, definitely, and it, it's it's right out of his uh, egotistical playbook. Yeah, and 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 even though he knows he shouldn't boast about it, he goes on Piers Morgan, talks about Pizza Gay. He, he knows he, he shouldn't look, he shouldn't play on the fact that he knows about the Twin Towers and Bin Laden and all this stuff. But again, can't resist putting a little bit of that in his book. So you've got this incredible narrative, whether it's true or not. I mean, you couldn't make it up, could you? It's a brilliant tale. I think, I think we said in there, you, if you wrote it as a script, it would get rejected for being too ridiculous and over the top. Oh, yeah, it? it would, yeah, yeah. 
Now, talking about ridiculous and over the top, we did a episode on weird experiments. It wasn't necessarily paranormal, but it was it was more in the strange end of the quantum mechanics rather than the paranormal with a big P. Um, and I've picked one of the sillier stories that we covered. This was a scientific study in Norway to test whether wet underwear was less comfortable than dry underwear. Have a listen. I'm not quite sure what it was trying to prove. It was a small study uh, that may seem like it was proving the obvious. Researchers in Norway found that wearing wet underwear in cold weather can be very uncomfortable. Uh, Okay. (laughs) It was a 1994 study published by the journal Ergonomics looking at eight men who sported long underwear tops and bottoms while sitting in a test chamber for 60 minutes in cold temperatures. Uh, 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius. Some men wore wet long underwear bottoms while the rest wore dry skivvies. Four wet fabrics with different thicknesses were tested. Cotton, wool, polypropylene and wool propylene blended materials. Every minute of the experiment, the men's skin temperature, rectile temperature, and weight... (laughs) (laughs) Look, once again, this is someone's peccadillo. This is not science. Oh, yeah, we're going to test underwear. Okay, that sounds reasonable. Yeah, I just have to get right into the rectum. What? Oh, nothing, that's fine. Carry on. I don't think they they tested the effects on their peccadilloes. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, it wouldn't bloody surprise me. No, no. So everybody in the experiment, the men's skin temperature, <laughs> rectile temperature and weight loss were measured. Weight loss. <laughs> Every 10 minutes, the men rated, <laughs> rated how much they were shivering and sweating and how comfortable they felt. <laughs> As surprising as, <laughs> as surprising as it may seem, the men in wet under, underwear felt colder and less comfortable than the guys in drier underwear. Well, what a the surprise. Res- <laughs> the researchers concluded that to stay comfortable in cold, wet conditions, an underwear's thickness matters more than its fabric. So maybe they did find something, but Jesus, you know. And... and- <laughs> How did they reconcile the arse temperature data? I don't, I don't know. I've not seen. I've not seen the charts on that. But. <laughs> well, well, I want Can you to imagine, see. It. I, I just, I just, I keep thinking they probably put an ad in a paper somewhere saying, "Would you like to take part in an experiment?" And you probably went, "Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's, it's fifty quid, hundred dollars, whatever. I'll, I, I'm up for it." Right, what we want you to do is to put on some underwear and go and sit in really cold water. We're going to take your temperatures, both both in a normal way and your rectile temperature, and, <laughs> and measure if you lose any weight. Is that all right with you? You just go, yeah, okay, look, thanks, thanks, but no thanks, right? Wh- which country was this? This was in Norway. Ah. I know there's... No- I mean, there's no way I'm doing that. I don't think there's a lot to say about that, is there, Ben? I think it's 
No, the the, cra- the craziness of that experiment doesn't need any further explanation. <laughs> Not really. I mean, I think it's fairly self-explanatory. Let's move on to uh, a couple of episodes we did with a really interesting guy called Tony Hayes. Oh yeah. So Tony Hayes is an E, how would you describe him? An EVP expert? What would you? Yeah, I'd say EVP him? experts, um, paranormal investigator, parapsychologist. Yeah. So the first episode we did with him was just a more generic look at electronic voice phenomena and, well, I guess, spooky recordings on tape, uh, and he shared with us uh, a really bizarre. Uh, bit of audio that I, I just found found amazing. Mm. Um, so have a little listen to his description uh, and uh, some of the audio that he brought us. So this, just to go on with things that are um, uh, non-human that have been recorded, uh, I know um, before the recording we spoke about you, you picked up the sound of a grandfather clock, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's well, years ago. That was a real interesting one. Um, it was an empty building, it was an old manor house, it's scheduled to get pulled down. Um, and a couple of me, uh, some female friends of mine were at the bottom of the stairs, just sat there. They were yapping, these two girls, they had the recorder, and the place was completely had no empty of everything, there's nothing there. Then, the following day, you listen back, and what you hear is tick. That's a grandfather clock. Next thing is, it's like a male sort of drifts in, then a, then he drifts away, and there's a female comes through. Then there's other noises. What sounded like like um, it's difficult to sound. I would say it's almost like a train going past type of effect. Then the clock starts again. Fascinating to listen to. So you sometimes build this. You know, because with it, you're allowed to imagine, you know, let your mind go wild. <clears throat> it's almost as if you sat there and somehow this time stamp is being projected back in in, t- in time periods. Because that one with the uh, grandfather clock, that that was there for about maybe 20 seconds, disappeared, then it's replaced by something else. So I think it was a genuine, genuine haunting residual energy involved. And it's these... Snippets of time that seem to be replayed back. Nothing visual whatsoever, just all audio, but we didn't hear it at the time, you see. So in a way, it's EVP. Maybe, um, maybe we could have a listen to that now.
so so in terms of those sounds so again a cynic would say well maybe they were kind of ambient sounds that are around anywhere else but there was there was nothing that could have made those sounds no absolutely not no so i i think that's like really difficult to explain like the thing that you get from tony is that he is a he's an investigator and he's got a lot to lose by telling any untruths and i really don't think he is but that audio of the clock it is extraordinary it, it it's very very hard to explain yeah yeah it's really weird and especially it's especially the clock bit. Because I listen to those and there's all kinds of weird noises going on. You think, oh, well, that bit could be just some kind of, you know, weird background that's being distorted or whatever. But that ticking clock is damn clear. <laughs> and I don't know what else it could be apart from a ticking grandfather clock in an abandoned house. Yeah. That hasn't got a grandfather clock in it. Yeah. Or any other kind of clock. And it, it clearly the sound is not like a watch. It's not like a stopwatch. It's it's a pendulumed, heavy pendulumed clock. It's just so bizarre. Uh and talking of bizarre, we talked briefly about it on that EVP episode, but then we did a follow up episode of it about uh a, a haunting that uh that Tony and his group were investigating in Chester, um, so uh, it, it's an office building, and a guy had some spooky events going on. We're just going to listen uh, to Tony introducing it, and then we will hear the guy who runs the office late at night having a really spooky encounter. So, welcome back, Tony Hayes, parapsychologist and investigator. Um, thank you for joining us. Now, you have, uh, since we've spoke to you last, you've been doing a fairly extensive investigation of, uh, a, well, a, a property experiencing strange anomalies in Chester. How did you get involved with that? The, the actual complex itself was completed just over 20 years ago. It's a multi-million pound business uh, just outside of Chester. And the current business owner, which is the one we've been in contact with, he moved in to the... It was completed December last year. He moved in the end of January this year, 2020. Almost immediately, within a few short weeks, he then begins to encounter phenomena which he thought was unusual, particularly knocks, bangs and raps, which, because of... As we're now moved into lockdown, the building is completely empty. This guy's clientele is predominantly American, so he's at the he's at the business at night on his own, and he's hearing this strange phenomena. What he then does is that you know it's like anything you speak to friends and and colleagues, and they think you're going mad. So he gets his mobile phone, and we get some commentary. Um, walking down through the the main office, through the briefing room, into the hallway. You can see the area start because it's on sensor lights. And just as he's talking through this, this enormous bang occurs. And as he turns around with, a, uh, with his smartphone, this huge painting, five and a half kilo, kilos in weight, has just come down. 
and it's been there for six weeks. He actually tarts his throat after his initial shock. As you can see, there is nothing in terms of cables. That's just the, the detector there, waiting again. Nothing in the hall there. Now, that is the light that is automatic. It picks, picks you up as soon as you go into the hall out there. Um, <laughs> what the hell? Right, so that's been stood there. That's been stood there for the best part of six weeks. And I have got the most horrendous goose pimples right now. That's never happened before. And then it's just ramped up and gone from there. So, Ben, that was another frustrating bit of lockdown and COVID, really, that we didn't really get a chance to go and check out that building. Yeah. I really want to... I don't, I don't know what's happening with it now. I don't know if you've been in contact with Tony, but I'd love to know, maybe with lockdown, nothing, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I would as well, because the phenomena that was coming out of there was uh, truly extraordinary, yeah. And yeah. he also had the... Um, the cuckoo clock. Oh, that's right. There was another clock, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. I've forgotten about that. Yeah, there was the dog barking and there was the sound of a cuckoo. This wasn't necessarily a clock, but it, it but you're right. To me it sounded more like a cuckoo clock than a a cuckoo in a nest, but maybe I don't know enough about cuckoos, but <laughs> Well, that is one of the I'm, things it, as a paranormal I'm not a Twitterer. As as a paranormal investigator, you need to know what every bird sound is. Um <laughs> Yeah, I thought you were going to say you need to be a bit cuckoo. If, <laughs> well, yeah, that too. But it's worth going to listen to that episode because the the sound in the middle of the night. Well, it it, it defies explanation. It it is a cuckoo, and you might say, well, maybe you know, there's a cuckoo doing its song at two a.m. But I don't know. I think it's worth listening to because I, I think it's a really peculiar phenomena. Um, I, I agree. Totally agree. Uh, I want to come on to more modern day technology than a grandfather clock because uh, we did an episode called Calls from the Dead or What's Apparition, I think, actually. We named it in the end. I think we were originally going to call it Calls from the Dead, but we went for What's Apparition. Do you see what we did there? Um, and we're going to play this story that Ben told uh, about somebody who worked in a funeral parlour who started getting messages on his phone from uh, someone who was uh, dead, basically, and was part of the funeral parlour that he was working at. Have a listen to this. So this one is uh, about text messages. Yep. And it's relayed to us, again, I found this on a on a subreddit. This is uh, relayed to us by a man who works in a funeral home. And he... In his opening gambit, he says, 
it sounds like a morbid job, but, you know, you soon get used to it. And uh, he says the pay's good and it's a profession that's never going to go away. So he talks about how he uh, isn't personally pre- uh, working with prepping corpses for the funeral, but he is on the planning side. So he works with families of the deceased and looking at, you know, what how they want to see off their loved ones. And he describes one day when there is a mother and father in their 40s. They come in, tearing up, he says, as they always do. And their son had died. He was 19. He was called Bobby. And a, he had died in what he describes as a very nasty car accident on uh, on the highway. Um, he takes the parents to go and identify the body. And he describes, because it was such a nasty car accident, um, I didn't realise this, but funeral homes have uh, makeup people mm. to make the bodies more yeah. acceptable. So he describes how uh, the back of this kid's head is missing. So they use a wig to like make him look more human. And obviously they try and be very, very sensitive with the parents because this is a you know, terrible time mm. for them. Yeah. And so he he does the identification with the parents. He then goes through with them what the service is going to look like, what sort of coffin he's going to have, all of that sort of thing. And then he goes home and he talks about how you have to disassociate yourself and you can't take this stuff home with you. So he goes home, has a shower, gets in the PJs uh, and starts watching a show on telly in the living room. And then his telephone goes off, his mobile goes off. And in capital letters, it says, hello. And it's from an unknown number. And he doesn't think anything of this because, you know, he says he's got lots of friends and it's not unusual that they might text him. Um, He's thinking that, you know, someone who's going to invite me out to a party or a bar or something. And he just goes, hey, who's this? And back again in caps, it says Bobby. Bobby who? He replies. He doesn't know anyone called Bobby. He hasn't associated that cadaver with, 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 the, name. with yeah. the name because, you know, he's expecting someone from his life. Uh, and then in caps, the message comes back. You know who I am. You met my parents today. And that's when he says, like, his the bottom fell out of his world. He said, I felt yeah. dizzy as I read it. Um he said, my stomach was like a rock. And then he sort of recovers and says, well, you know, this is someone messing with me, right? This can't be, there's not the dead kid. And so he replies and just says, this isn't funny. What happened to him was horrible and no one should be joking about it like this. Yeah. And then he gets a message back that says, in caps again, shut your rotten mouth. You let them ruin my funeral. Ruin it. 
it should have been you in the car accident, not me. You'll have an earlier grave too if it goes my way. And then he starts flipping out and trying to work out, you know, what's going on. So he describes then he has like a fitful night's sleep, goes back in to work the next day and then feels compelled that he has to go and look at the body of Bobby because he just wants to get it clear in his head that this isn't a corpse that's texting him from beyond the grave. So he goes down to the mortuary area, opens up the drawer where the body is, takes a look. It looks no different. He describes how he looks around, you know, he says it's staff, but he looks around making sure that there isn't a phone in there and, and there isn't a phone in there with him. And... Then later on in that day, his phone starts ringing. And again, it's from the same unknown number. And he describes this voice coming through. He says, uh, his, his, his words are, the most demonic deep voice I'd ever heard. Why don't you come back down here? Come down and see me again. Come now or I'll come for you. And and he just replies, like, I don't know who you are. I don't know why you're doing this, but stop it. And then the voice comes back. You know exactly who I am. Come back down and play with me. We can be best buds. And then the phone hangs up. So he then describes for the rest of the story um, how upset he is. And he just blocks that number. He tries to phone it, doesn't, as is common with all these things, he gets a number not known. So he just blocks that number and nothing happens again. Wow. I mean, as a follow up, he says he now works in the boat rental business and (laughs) he's he's never going back to dead bodies. Yeah, change of career was definitely on the cards there, I think. Yeah, yeah. That is just a incredibly scary chilling story i think of a lot of, we've done a lot of stories that have been kind of spooky but there's something about that one that's really scary I yeah think. it's it does send uh chills down your back and your arms particularly because you it, you really struggle to find a rational explanation for it it's not just like a sighting of a mist or a shadow it's a tangible thing that happens on an electronic device and i think that's particularly bizarre well i think the other thing about that whole episode and a lot of the stories that we featured in that ep was a lot of them seem quite personal yeah do you know what i mean the 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 whatever it was the spirits the entity whatever was going on it was personal whereas hauntings seem to be a bit more Generic, maybe, is not the right word. But do do you know what I mean by that? Oh, I do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, if it's directed at your own mobile phone and it is purporting to be an entity that you've interacted with, then, I mean, that's terrifying. It is terrifying. And, And again, like, 
as we always say, because we try and bring, you know, a, a bit of a sceptical eye into this, you have to ask, why is that person lying? There doesn't seem to be a good reason for that person to lie. No, and not 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 in a way of a lot of the stories went on that episode. I think, for, especially when it was that personal nature, I think it makes it even more weird for somebody to lie about it. So yeah, yeah, I, that that was that was quite a scary episode. That one. Let's move on to an episode we did, which I really liked because uh, Ben, we did a bit of a twist on the haunting so normally hauntings are ghosts uh coming ghost spirits whatever you want to call them demons but we did an episode about actual houses and buildings that did the haunting it's called houses that haunt houses that haunt yeah and ben you came up or found this amazing story of uh a woman who ended up having a coffee in a cafe that hadn't existed for well for for years so uh have a little listen to this and then i discovered this brilliant little tale and it involves the wonderful so the investigator who looked into this um he gave the name of our our heroine of the tale, the young English girl, he calls yeah. her doll feet. So when I talk about doll feet, it is they, this is the pseudonym for the woman that this happened to. Yeah. And in 1981, this girl has cause to go to Piccadilly Circus, London Underground Station. So even 1991, this is, this is uh, so 1981, we're still talking, this is a pretty modern environment. It, it won't look too dissimilar to the way it does today. And anybody that um, doesn't know London, Piccadilly Circus is just about the busiest part of London. There's an old phrase in, in the UK, if, if somewhere's busy, you go, oh, it's like Piccadilly Circus around here. And that's because it is super busy. And it's really famous for its giant now electronic um, advertising hoarding there and the reason that she's going there to piccadilly circus is because she's going for a job interview and on her way to the job interview she discovers that she is quite early and as most of us would do she looks around and as she's just coming out of the underground station, this is just at the point where she realises she's early, she goes into a cafe. And in that cafe, she, she just orders some tea and some snacks. And she describes there are various people in that cafe. There is um, one of the people that she describes... She calls her the grumpy old woman, but there's a there's a grumpy old woman who's another customer, and she mm. describes a number of waitresses, the people that serve her, wearing pink gingham, like I suppose you'd call them American-style diner yep. dresses, sort of mid-calf, white trainers, you know the sort, and yep. 
she gets her she gets her food she pays with cash 1981 there's no such thing as apple pay or anything like that and she leaves yeah (laughs) she goes she goes off and goes to her job interview now the first sort of i'm sort of distilling this story down because there's a there's a lot to unpack around it so i'm giving you the very meat of it there are further details and if and if people search for the vanishing cafe at piccadilly circus they'll find them but basically when she describes to the people that she has the job interview for when they say you know that question how was your journey here did you get here okay she says i was a little early and popped into this particular cafe and that sparks an interest with people oh i didn't know that existed oh that's really interesting that sounds great you know a 1950s style cafe in 1980 with all the the waitresses wearing pink gingham and serving you coffee out of uh you know glass glass flasks that sounds that sounds great and it doesn't sound very piccadilly circus either no no it doesn't and of course as you can imagine because of the theme of this podcast she goes back to it and it is not there and what is super interesting about this is that it did once exist, Ugh. but it had long since vanished. And what is also really sort of stands out about this case is that she describes a number of features about the cafe that ring true to how it used to be. <clears throat> so she describes... Uh, the pine chairs. She even describes the kind of horizontal slats that sit across the pine chairs. Right. Uh, she also describes, um, in, and it's these small details that make it... Uh, well, actually, on the chair front is a really good one because when you stereotypically think of a kind of 1950s, 60s-style American diner, you think of those kind of metal and kind of faux leather kind of red chairs don't you you don't you wouldn't think of the ones that you're describing so yeah it's an interesting detail yeah 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 and um she also as part of her sort of um description that she gave to an investigator she talks about a swinging metal sign in front and it was that that led her into the cafe and and she's even drawn a little diagram of how the cafe looks so she kind of describes that as she came out of the so the obviously it's an underground so she's got stairs up to the uh the ground level and then as she turns away around the corner to the right she sees this metal sign you know advertising coffee and a cafe she's like oh this is perfect so she goes that it's that sign that draws her in Right. And then when she's in there, the, she describes this serving area, the layout of the chairs, some mirror tiles at one side, uh, a, this white door that the waitresses went through to get her coffee, this, as I've described, creepy old woman who was the other person in there. Uh, uh, and also she describes uh, a man, but she has no further details. So the, in, there's in, a lot of detail there. Right? There's a there's lot of detail, lot yeah. of description, kind of over and above, you know. Uh, over and above, that's right. And yeah, wow. as well, once she, she drew this out, investigators realised that 
that such a thing really did used to be there. And, and, and do we know when that was? Was that kind of... Yeah, so it, it was in the 50s. And it, right. it, like, opinions vary on when it definitely closed down. But it looks to be around the mid-60s. Wow. So there's... It's incredible. And it's making me really want a kind of vanilla malt shake as well. Oh, yeah. My stomach's rumbling while you're talking about it. I love an American diner. Again, for our for our American listeners, I know it sounds weird, but it's a rare occurrence for us, isn't it, to have a good malt shake, a bit of kind of chilli fries and a good burger is really... It's not as easy as you think in the UK. I love that story, Ben. I just... I, I think about that story quite a lot. Yeah. Well, I think the thing about it is that it's incredibly well documented... And it has historical value. You can look back at the things that she talks about in that story and they absolutely existed. And the fact that she was on her way to a job interview, it, there's a lot about it that y you kind of think, well, you know, I always come back to what does somebody have to gain and there is not a lot to gain by turning up at a job interview um, because you've been at a ghost cafe. I mean... Yeah. It, but the, good, the good thing about that story as well is there is quite a lot of supporting evidence and um, yeah. detail around it. It's not just something that's pulled off a forum that somebody says happened. There, there are... If you dig... The more you dig into that story, there is a lot around it that, that backs up uh the 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 woman's account of what happened absolutely absolutely and it just makes you think that um because there's a lot of time slip stories and in that episode we also had a great time slip story mm. about a manor house in suffolk and again like there's the 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 way that that surfaced itself was through a gardening magazine, you know, before the days of the internet. And I just, I find that absolutely fascinating. The, the, nobody has anything to gain by writing to a gardening magazine in the 70s and 80s talking about a manor house that they saw apparate during a walk. And so, yeah, I, th I think that's fascinating evidence. <laughs> it's probably the juiciest article they've ever had, hasn't it? <laughs> well, you say that. I mean, yeah. parsnips and frost. Yeah, yeah. How to get your marrows growing. Um, brilliant. Yeah, go, go. Look, e even if you don't listen to the whole episode, which I, I, I recommend you do, just uh, listen to that full story on houses that haunt. Go back and listen to it. It's amazing. Um, we did an episode called creature comfort so i've got a clip from that it's a really good episode about uh people who have come back and been comforted by loved ones who they've believed have come back as animals there's also some great stories in that episode about animals that have uh, rescued humans but I, i've picked a different kind of clip and i really wanted to talk about a more generic point ben so the clip i've picked is this weird experience uh, that happened and actually I think gave me the idea of doing that episode 
where I had a strange account, uh, encounter with a number of injured birds. Just have a quick listen to this. We had done episodes about, uh, I think it was called Rudiger and the Benches, where we talked about strange coincidences and jots, just one of those things. And I had this strange thing where we were looking in our back garden and there was an injured bird. Uh, I think it was a jackdaw. They're quite big birds, but it was it was a young fledgling. Don't know if it had fallen out of a nest or something, but it looked like it had a broken wing. Uh, so we we there's a local um, kind of sanctuary that looks after animals. We gave them a ring and said, right, we've got this bird. What do we do? And they said, well, if you could, uh, you know, wrap it in a blanket or or a towel or something, put it in a, a cardboard box with a few holes in it so it can breathe and bring it in. Um, this is kind of at the start of lockdown. Um, so we had plenty of Amazon various size boxes to choose from. So we just grabbed one of those. We put this little fledgling bird in. We drove the two or three miles to this kind of sanctuary. They took the bird, gave us the towel and the, bo- the box back and we headed home Thought, thinking, you know, we've done our good deed for the day. Uh, we've looked after an animal. And I got out of the car and walked to our front door and there was a bird on the front door that was injured, another bird. Now, it wasn't a jack door, it was a smaller one, like a finch or something. I'm no no twitcher. They're called twitchers, aren't they? Uh, twitcher or uh, ornithologist? It's probably better. I'm no ornithologist, I'll tell you that. But um, So there's this small bird on the thing. So we've just dropped one bird off. We come back and there's another injured bird, this time on, by the front doorstep. You know, so we were joking around saying... You know, so, was... so did you roast it? Yeah, yeah. We, well, I, I, I took the mickey <laughs> it out of it. It was a roasted, it was an <laughs> injured chicken. <laughs> I, did, I, I took the mickey out of it for at least five minutes. I don't know if that counts as a way. So, yeah, so we drop one bird off. We come back, we box in hand, and there's another one waiting for us at the doorstep. So we literally got back in the car, drove the three miles back to the sanctuary, and they're like, what are you doing back? We said, well, we found another bird, literally, when we got home. Uh, Can we give you this one? And they said, well, yeah, it looks like it's kind of flown into a window and just a bit dazed, but we'll, we'll nurse it back to health and... Thanks very much for bringing your two birds on two separate occasions within the last half hour. And now you've got a reputation as <laughs> the household that really hurts birds. The bird whisperer. We put little stickers on the windows so they don't fly into them anymore. You can get these cute little bird stickers. We definitely recommend them if you've got a house that has birds flying in. So the reason I picked that story, Ben, is we've had some strange coincidences and goings on while we've been doing this podcast and people say more you look at the paranormal the more it looks back at you Mm. and I was always a bit skeptical of that and you know I I I don't know if it's that or you know some kind of version of paradoilia where you see patterns and all that kind of stuff in stuff that goes on but we've had some weird ones so there's yep. that one that happened to me. We've had a few stories from you on that front. The other one mm. I remember is uh, me having conversations with people. It was in the Vardiger and the Banshees episode, but there was a job for me where I'd had a number of conversations with people and was listening to a radio show and everything just panned out <laughs> of the topics. There were random topics that 
I'd 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 uh, encountered in the days before. Uh, there was another one where we were talking. I think it was in that episode again where we were talking about coincidences, and you mentioned somebody called Ron to me, mm-hmm. and you didn't know, but Ron was the name of my dad. Um, I had a weird one as well last few days. That kind of I, I don't again. It's probably not paranormal. But I've had a couple of occasions now where I've been working at this computer. Never happens any other time when I've been working on the podcast and my telly turns itself on. And okay. I, I think it happened once when we were recording, I, I remember. We had to kind of stop. And you said, oh, it's probably your son just playing with the remote control. I was like, yeah, no, probably was. But it's happened a couple of times since then while I've been on my own in the house working on the podcast so it probably is just dodgy batteries dodgy remotes but it's things like weird things like that have happened while we've been doing this podcast yeah yep they have they have um i would say like the weird coincidences for me have been um i they're really really small things it's like jots it's 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 things like um i'll wake up in the morning with a song going through my head and then uh i'll get in the car and put the you know when you turn the car on the stereo comes on and it's it's the same song and it's obviously you can put it down to coincidence but it's happened so many times that I've had a really, really obscure song that I've woken up in my head and it's become an earworm. And then I'll, for no reason, like, because we're in lockdown, I don't need to drive anywhere. But like a couple of hours later, I've driven out to a shop somewhere and I start the car and there's that song. And you just go, well, that's weird. That's really odd. And is it quite an obscure song? It's not like, yeah, it's <laughs> Merry a really Christmas, obs- everyone, or anything. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like um, some of the culprits have been um, Land of Confusion, Genesis. Um, okay, that is, that's that, that's come up. Um, the Sign, Ace of Base, that's come up. Yeah. Uh, uh, I suppose less. The, t- the titles are sounding quite applicable as well. <laughs> well, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, um, uh, Eminem, Stan, that came up. That was last week, actually. I woke up and that song was going round and round in my round in my head. And oh God, I guess it was like a, a Tuesday or a Wednesday, um, probably about ten days ago. And uh, I said to my partner about lunchtime, I said, oh, I'm going to go and get um, some food for dinner. And we both agreed that I'd go out to this farm shop. And I started the car and I just had the little local radio station on Jack FM, you know, which just covers pretty much the region we live in. And uh, there were adverts playing. And then the next song was was stan and i was a bit kind of i don't know 
because you can't. Weird. It's re- it is weird, but it's not beyond the realms of possibility that it's a coincidence. <laughs> it was on their playlist. Well, you you should write Eminem a letter saying that you're psychically linked to him. <laughs> that yeah, is the, I, that is the premise of Stan, right? You should do it. Yeah, <laughs> he'd love that. He'd love that. <laughs> Well, I had that music one as well, where I dreamt that my wife had run off with Mick Jagger. Oh, yeah. And, and then the next day, next morning, she was wearing a Mick Jagger T-shirt that she hadn't worn for a couple of years. So, so, yeah. I mean, whether those things would have happened if we weren't doing the podcast and I just wouldn't have thought about them so much, that's, that's a distinct possibility. But I don't know. I'm, I'm generally quite sceptical about that kind of thing, when it comes to myself, I'm really open-minded with everybody's stories. But I, there's almost a bit of it going, oh, it wouldn't happen to me. So, but I've I, I definitely over the last few months, I've been a little bit more, okay, all right, maybe, maybe. Bit of yeah. maybe coming in. Anyway, um, I think we'll have more of that next year. We should keep... Because we kind of randomly tell each other these things, either on or off the podcast, but... We should actually get better at noting them down, I think, because, you know, A, we can make an episode of it, and B, it would be good to keep a record anyway. Yeah. So we're going to do that. There there you go. There's a paranormal New Year's resolution for Ben and I. So uh, our review of 2020, we're going to close part one. There will be a part two, uh, so look out for that. I wanted to close part one. Talking of scary, I, I wanted to go back to the first episode that we published uh, in March of this year, the very first episode we did. Uh, we've, it's got loads of different names. We've, we've called it Nikki's Story, we've called it The Railway Murders, and we've called it The Ilma Haunting. So I'm just going to call it The Ilma Haunting because that's the, that's the one where we took the two episodes and put them both together. So if you're going to listen to it and you've not heard it, go and listen to that one one of the first ones we did i think the interesting thing about it because it was the first episode we did ben i i said to loads of my friends who are not particularly into the paranormal oh you've got to listen to it this is the podcast me and ben are doing and now now we've kind of got a number of listeners and we're doing really well most of them are fessed up that they turned it off after about five or ten minutes I said, oh, were we that bad? They said, no, we were just too scared. <laughs> <laughs> I've had four separate people who don't know each other said, I got like 10 minutes in or I got halfway through and it, it was just too scary. I couldn't listen to it anymore. Well, I can sympathise with that. I think because it was the closest we've come to, you know, a one-on-one experience. It's the closest we've got to being able to talk to somebody who has had that real kind of interaction with something that is, you know, not of this world. And because she is so sane and down to earth and um, her son, who it happens to, is also remarkably sane and kind of pragmatic about the whole thing that almost makes it more chilling because there's again like like i said before there's no reason to lie there's they aren't getting anything out of it 
And her quest to find the truth was... It, it was driven by the fact that her child was in trouble. And mm. there's there's absolutely no reason to make up a story about that. And, yeah, yep. it's it's really convincing. And then the evidence that you uncovered from court records and such that add weight to it are remarkable. They really are yeah. remarkable. I, I was completely sure. I mean, w w the way we did that episode was we heard Nikki's story and we recorded that and she told us loads of facts that mediums and various people had said to her and then we went away and did the investigation of it and, and you know, we didn't know what we were going to come up with, did we? Me and you went no. to, the, to Ilma where it happened. I then kind of based myself in the local library going through paper newspaper records and court records and stuff we had a lo we had a historian didn't we you found a historian who helped us yeah and we came across a story which kind of could looked like it it could be similar to the one uh that Nikki had described and then we did the research so let's have a listen to the first bit which is a short summary of Nikki. There's so much more in the whole episode, but it's a, it'll give you a flavour of some of the things that Nikki was experiencing and and what mediums and psychics were telling her. The story that you've got when you first told me it, I was I was kind of blown away because it's the stuff it's the stuff of films really. It starts what eleven years ago really. Yep, and my son who incidentally had not had sleeping problems like my daughter had had before, he started waking up in the night several times, uh, especially around the two, three o'clock in the morning time, you know, when you're in your deepest, darkest sleep. I'd wake up to my son crying and, and sometimes I'd leave him and sometimes he'd go back to sleep, but then he'd wake up again. Or sometimes he'd wake up in a real hysteria and I'd go straight in and, and, and try and settle him. And he's about two and a half at this point. At this point, he's about yeah. two and a half. Um, so this was happening at least, I don't know, five times a week. Uh, so you can imagine I'm not getting much sleep now. Um, and it's getting desperate. And, and I was rushing to him more than not now because I was worried that he was going to wake up my daughter. And if she woke up, then I'd have two children awake. And, you know, it would just be an ever-decreasing circle. So I would go to him, and the odd thing was that he would always be happy to see me. He was always a bit of a mummy's boy, if I'm honest. But in these moments, he would hug me very, very tightly, but then he would push me away. He would push me out of his arms. He wanted to get away from me and look at me and say, no, 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 get away, get away. But then he would come back into his sort of sleepy mode and his eyes would close again and he'd hug me tight. Mummy, 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 help me, mummy, help me, mummy. So he would look at me as if I was somebody else. And that was obvious to me. He then starts mumbling things. Um, when I'm asking him questions, he's mumbling things that are almost incoherent and 
one night it, it sort of I made sense of it and he said no the man the man and he kept saying about man and I'd say what man and he'd say he's going to hurt me that was the first thing he would say uh, and then he'd say he's got a stick with a sharp thing on the end of it and and at this point there's there's something that happens in the house that you dismiss right that was before are we talking about the wardrobe? Yeah. When my husband and I were still together, we often used to put the children to bed and cuddle on the sofa whilst we were watching a programme. And one evening, a bright light absolutely categorically came down the stairs and took the form of a little girl and walked into the wardrobe that was in the hallway where we kept our coats. I have gone to a shop in Princess Risborough and I'm bending down and I've got my very large handbag on my shoulder but swung over onto my back so that when I'm bending down, my back's supporting the weight. And I'm looking at these beautiful crystals and all of a sudden my bag gets knocked off my back and swings down and I just about save it from crushing all the crystals in the nice glass shelves and I just quickly turned and went oh I'm sorry and there was nobody there the woman behind the counter went <laughs> gave us chuckle she said that happens a lot in here <laughs> so I'm thinking okay she said um, somebody followed you when you came into this shop can you smell tobacco and I said no no I can't she said, I'm getting a whiff of tobacco. She said, it's okay, he's not going to hurt you, but there's a man and he's pretty tall and he's got these overalls on, done up with braces. He's a quite a big, strong man. And he's filthy, you know, from his knees down. And he's got muck all over him. And it's like there's this kind of bogginess that's coming with it. It's like a mulch. There's that word again. So... Maria and Gloria turn up and Maria said, there's a lot going on here, darling, and I need to get to work. She said, oh, darling, this is amazing. His wife's been waiting for him for over a 100 years. He's afraid of retribution and he doesn't want to pass over to the other side because he thinks he's going to be in trouble. And here it comes. Here comes the story. Somebody did his wife wrong. It wasn't clear whether he had assaulted her sexually or physically or something, but it was enough to make Reg, the husband's blood boil. And they are working in the same vicinity, but some way away from this other guy. And Reg makes a long-handled object with a sharp knife on the end and he kills the other man. So he murders who has wronged his wife. Maria said to me that there was an enormous amount of energy coming from the railway and guess where the railway was? Top right of the kitchen. She's pointing in that direction. It comes from the railway through the house on the 
first flight of the stairs going up the hall to the landing, she said that wall on that bit of square had a portal coming through and there was an enormous amount of energy running through my house. So yeah, that was that was Nikki's story. Then the investigation started. So then I came across a couple of. Uh, I started searching for this double murder railway, this thing that this the historian was talking about, yeah. and I found it. <gasps> <laughs> I found it in a book on uh, an old book on murders in the area. I found it uh, in local newspapers, which I managed to source. So, this guy that we're talking about is called Thomas Gilbert. Okay. Um, Now, he worked as a foreman plate layer on the railways. Now, he accused a man called Elijah Parker of having intentions on his wife. Um, He also said that this man was trying to poison him, that he was trying to poison his tea and kill him. The row between... Uh, Thomas Gilbert and these men started, and this sparked something in me as well, started when Thomas Gilbert, the guy who goes on to commit the murder, accused one of the men of smoking on the job. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know what's going yeah, through well my that's, mind? Yeah. Cigarette smoke, yeah, smell. I get a smell of tobacco, right? Yeah. Oh, crikey. Early on August the 29th, Busby and Tucker are found murdered in a tool shed near the railway station in Little Kimball. Gilbert is arrested and confesses to the murder. So let's come on, you mentioned the weapon, let's come on to the weapon. Yeah. Because there are two things about the weapon where I was researching and had a little bit of a oh my god moment. When we were going around Ilma, I, I was saying to Ben... I don't get this description of the the weapon. Why wouldn't you just hit somebody with a stick or stab them with a knife? I don't understand why you would make a weapon out of the two. And we kind of debated it quite a lot, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, we did, yeah. Um, so, and I was going, I just, I just don't understand it. Then when I was going through the transcripts of the trial, I found a quote from the first witness, which, well, I'll see what your reaction is to this because it just blew me away. Gilbert's neighbour was called as a witness because he'd seen Gilbert leaving for work in the morning that the murders were committed. He said, I saw Gilbert leave at 6.45 for the station. He was carrying his stick, as he always did. (laughs) There you go. Which... Now, the other thing was, in his confession, he talks about this kind of pick, pick handle but they're not sure that he committed the crime with that because they found a bag that he'd abandoned near the murder scene and it contained what's called a keying hammer. Now, I didn't know what a keying hammer was, so did a bit of kind of research and Googling. I know you're not going to be able to hear this on the podcast, um, but we're going to show Nikki what a keying hammer is and then maybe, Ben, if you can kind of describe it. So this is the head of a keying hammer. So a keying hammer is a long piece of wood, like a hammer handle, but very much longer. And on the end are various interchangeable heads uh, that are very hammer-like, but they are very much sharper 
than a normal hammer. That's definitely sharper. Yeah. And you attach them to the shafts. Oh some uh, some of them, not all of them, but you attach them to the shaft. And they they only found the key hammer head. So the implication being that he'd taken maybe this this pickaxe shaft and he'd put one of the heads from his keying hammer onto the shaft and committed the murder. Mm. So, again, your two ladies who came round saying he made a weapon with us, that explained to me... Very, 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 very close, too close for it to be a coincidence. And as we were saying just before that clip, we didn't really know what that was going to bring up, right, Ben? And No. Uh, and what this has happened a few times on the podcast... We kind of thought, well, it's probably going to be a waste of time and we're not going to get anything. And then, bang, you hit something and go, oh, my God, that's really strange. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we'd done, we'd done all the research that um, you could do as a layperson, which is looking around the graveyard and walking around the village looking for leads. But it took an enormous amount of investigation and digging, not just with the local historian, but with um, the uh, the council and their records and court records and looking at evidence that was given during court cases. And suddenly everything begins to take shape and yeah. it turns into like a verifiable like proper story yeah and that that was the thing i think it was a really good case for us to start our podcast journey on because it was one of those where you bump into someone in the street and they say oh i've got a story and then you really dig into it and you go yeah no you really do have a story yeah yeah and it's yeah. it's not something that can be easily dismissed you aren't a nutcase you you know you were at the time a business person now you're a teacher the child that it happened to is very nearly an adult and they believe it and they can relate the story yeah it was extraordinary that 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 blew my mind yeah no i agree and i think it I think it was good in a way as well because it kind of set the bar for what we kind of had to follow. Not every episode can be a great investigation. And I know we've said over over this year, again, it's another thing with COVID, that we wanted to do more of those investigations and getting out there and visiting places. But partly, well, mainly, no, actually totally because of COVID and lockdown, we've not been able to do that. So I think there was a worry when we went into lockdown of, oh, my God, would the, would the rest of the episodes of us talking about stuff work? And, you know, I think it was good. It set the bar high for us, I think. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. yeah. And thanks to Nikki uh, and her family for, well, Nikki for telling us the story and her family for letting us uh, air it. It's, uh, I thought it was a brave thing to do. Oh, very brave, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, that's the end of part one of our look back at 2020 uh we've got some more exciting stuff in 
part two, and we've got a little bit of a preview of uh, something that's coming up uh, at the start of next year as well, which will, which is very exciting. So uh, depending on when you're listening to this, yeah, keep looking for that episode when it comes out, or actually it might be the next one in the list, so just click it. See you next time on The Quantum Mechanics. See you next time. Are you the quantum mechanics?